what is the best things in life? What's the book about? Well, it is a modern, fictional, Socratic dialogue about the good things in life. More specifically, it asks the basic question, what is the good life? So in this series of instructional and sometimes funny dialogues, this modern-day Socrates talks to several characters who are attending this fictional school called... Anybody remember the name of the school? Desperate State University. Desperate State University. It's funny names. So, uh, who are the who are some of the students that, that this Socrates is talking to? What are their names? Peter. Peter. What's it? Well, the last name is the, what makes it funny. So, what's the, his last name? Peter. He only mentioned his last name. It wasn't in there. It should be in there, like right at the beginning. His name is Peter Pragma. So, Peter Pragma. What do you think the connection is there? Pragma. You're a pragmatist, right? So it's Peter Pragma, and then we have who's who's the girl character, the girl student? Felicia. Oh, y'all haven't got there yet. But her last name is Felicia Flake. So what does that tell you about her? She's probably a flake. Yeah. So Socrates talks to these guys. Um, and he talks to them about the modern understanding of the good life. And he talks about how the role, the role that money, power, and pleasure, and success, and the truth play into achieving the good life. And along the way, Socrates addresses real-life questions about the purpose and goal of education. Uh, he talks about choosing a career. talks about knowing ourselves and God. And he talks about the meaning of success and doing good. And he discusses the relationship of drugs, sex, and music to power, pleasure, and truth. And so in the last chapter of the book, Socrates conducts what we would call an Oxford tutorial, which he refutes Felicia Flake's argument that all values are subjective, and he defends the existence and the necessity of objective values. Okay? So who wrote the best things in life? What's the author's name? Peter Kreft, yeah. So Peter Kreft wrote this, and he is a uh, philosophy professor, uh, and he wrote some popular uh, apologetics books from a Christian natural law perspective. Uh, He wrote The Best Things in Life. He wrote The Unaborted Socrates. He wrote uh, How to Win the Culture War, uh, a Christian battle plan for a society in crisis. And so he writes apologetics from a natural law perspective. Now, what is that? What's a natural law perspective? Well, a natural law perspective uh, assumes that by using your natural God-given reasoning skills, all people, whether they're Christians or not, whether they submit to God or not, will agree objectively on what is right and what is wrong in life. That's the natural law perspective, that there are natural laws in the world and in the universe that are outside, that you can visibly see outside of the Bible, and even pagans can agree with Christians upon what is right and what is wrong. And we're going to see later on in this lecture why this approach poses some, some real big problems biblically. Okay? And so Kreft... 
his alter ego in the dialogues is in the famous Greek philosopher Socrates, uh, and whom the author brings back to life in an effort to straighten out some modern college characters who aren't thinking so clearly. Now, who is the real Socrates? Not Sophocles. Sophocles is a different guy. That's who wrote the Oedipus Trilogy. Sophocles and Socrates, although, they're no, although their names sound the same, they sound very similar, they're different, okay? Different people. So who was Socrates? Well, Socrates was an Athenian philosopher. Uh, he grew up in Athens. He lives in Athens. He, and he got himself in trouble a lot with the city's leaders by being a busybody and by hanging out with some notorious anti-Democrats, including... Uh, some family members of his most famous student, Plato. Plato. So Socrates was Plato's teacher. Okay? Uh, bonus points if you know who Plato's, uh, who you know, uh, who was Plato's student. So we have, we have Socrates to Plato, and who did Plato teach? Aristotle? Yes, that's right. Aristotle. Right. And so, going back to Socrates, he was constantly uh, being a pain in the city leader's necks as he was constantly questioning and revealing the logical flaws in the arguments and views of the city's leaders. And he also did this with the other philosophers. He constantly questioned and critiqued their views. And he did this so much and to such a great extent that eventually he was charged with the crime of impiety. Dun, dun, dun. How would you like to be charged with the crime of impiety? What are you in for? Impiety. What does that even mean? Well, when you're impious, according to Greek culture, that means you fail to honor the traditional Greek gods. Now, we, people can be charged with impiety these days, right? Who are the gods of our world now? Government. Well, yeah, they're the, they're the government, and, and it's ultimately uh, man, right? You can be charged if, if you say something politically incorrect uh, and not that's a, and something that's not a, a, a religion of this age that doesn't adhere to it, you can be charged with the same thing. You can be called a racist. You can, be called, you can say uh, that you've had, uh, you've been having hate speech, and you can be accused of all sorts of things. So it's not too much different than this, right? So he was charged with impiety, and he was charged with corrupting the youth by teaching them philosophy that was not approved by the city's leaders. And the charges stuck, and he eventually was condemned to death for these charges. And after being condemned to death, if you won't leave the city, we're going to kill you. And he's like, I'll save you the trouble. I'll kill myself. And he did. He killed himself by drinking poison. And so that's the end of Socrates' life. And he has written many works, but he's probably best known by the saying, quote, no one does wrong voluntarily. That's what he's most noted as saying. No one does wrong voluntarily. Now, is that a true statement according to the Bible? No, everyone does wrong voluntarily. So uh, what this phrase means is, he, is Socrates believed that wrongdoing was due to a lack of knowledge. It wasn't because you were sinful. It wasn't because you had sin in your heart. It's just because you didn't know any better. You didn't know any better. And the solution was not to be regenerated. It was to be what? 
I've, we've talked about this before. If you don't know any better, you need to be educated. That's right. You need to be educated and write things instead of repenting and believing in Christ. So the best things in life is a really fun book. It's an entertaining example of analyzing modern moral and lifestyle issues in uh, the format of a, uh, the classic form of a Socratic dialogue. Now, Socratic dialogues were first made famous by Plato's writings that claimed to document some of Socrates' actual dialogues as well as his trial. Now, Socrates, uh, the Socratic dialogues use a question-and-answer format to explore and to logically evaluate many types of issues. Uh, your textbook and the way that we run class here is very much like a Socratic dialogue. When I'm not lecturing, what am I usually doing? Asking questions. Right, and we learn uh, things about the books we're reading and about God and his world in general through inquiry, through the asking of questions. And that's kind of like the Socratic method. That's close to it. And so in education, the Socratic method uh, has been used for generations. And for many years, it was, the, it was virtually the only form of instruction in American law schools. So in essence, the Socratic method is a form of cross-examination in which basic assumptions and positions on issues are examined and probed and challenged by logical leading questions. And that's what you're reading when you read The Best Things in Life. You notice Socrates is constantly asking questions. And then the, uh, the uh, respondent is constantly answering them. And then that answer prompts more questions. And he basically gets down to the, the bare bones of this person's worldview through these logical leading questions. And it's a very effective technique in finding inconsistencies in arguments. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an effective technique of finding contradictions or arbitrariness in the way that we think about issues and problems. But I think one of its weaknesses is the fact that it is, very, it is not very effective in showing us a coherent worldview. Okay? So it's very strong on logic, not as strong on showing us a coherent worldview. Um, the best things in life also reveals both the strengths and the weaknesses of what is known as the natural law approach to ethics and apologetics, uh, championed by Plato, Aristotle, <clears throat> and later on, Thomas Aquinas. So natural law, like I said earlier, uh, it assumes that there is a universal agreement uh, about basic morality and that all people, regardless of faith, regardless of culture, uh, can know through natural human reason what is right and what is wrong. And as we'll see, this view conflicts with certain key biblical truths about the nature of man and his reasoning capabilities. And so the strength of Peter Kreft's approach is his use of logic to question the assumptions of modern thinking. Uh, so, uh, on really important ethical issues like money, power, and pleasure. And he requests his dialogue partners, give me coherent reasons for why you believe what you believe. Why do you have these particular views? And he forces uh, the respondents either to find alternative reasons, 
for uh, their worldview or for why they believe what they believe, or his goal is for them to abandon those things altogether. And so that's a strength. But unfortunately, uh, a weakness of Peter Kreft's book and his method is undermined, the strength is undermined by the book's man-centered approach to ethics rather than it being God-centered, right? So this man-centered approach to ethics inadvertently reinforces the, the unbiblical notion that we can find the truth uh, about right and wrong, about what is good and bad in the world, by our own human reasoning apart from God, okay? Uh, that's, that's a huge problem because why is that such a big deal? Why, why am I saying that you finding uh, right and wrong by your own human reason is not going to work? Why do you think that I'm saying that? Why is it not true? What is the truth? How would you respond if someone asked you, hey, I can find out what's right or wrong and I don't need God to do that. I don't need the Bible. It's not true. Why isn't it? What, what is true? Uh, God has to enlighten you and show you that what is right or wrong. Why is that? Because we have sin in our hearts. Exactly. We have sin in our hearts. Our hearts are depraved. Right. Um, uh, the Bible tells us that finding uh, right and wrong apart from God um, <clears throat> tells us that he tells us that this is impossible because all sinners suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's Romans 1. They suppress the truth. You're not going to find out what's truly right and wrong or good and bad in the world uh, apart from the Lord because you, in your depraved heart, suppress the truth. You refuse to see the truth. Um, and so without God, that makes you trying to think about things like ethics. It distorts ethics. And it, and it ultimately uh, makes the search for ethics apart from God meaningless and futile. And so God has so wonderfully made us for himself that we can't even think rightly about ourselves. We can't think rightly about God or about his world without being in a relationship with him. We can't think rightly about anything else if we're outside of that relationship. And as a result of that, it is, as Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord. That is the beginning of knowledge. It can't start with man. It has to start with God. Okay? Uh, and only with renewed minds that are transformed by God can we really know what is good. So the best things in life, it never goes that far. And he, Peter Kreft never reveals this truth. But instead, he implies that we can come to know the truth about all of these important issues through our own reasoning without a mind renewed by God. And that's a huge problem. Okay, real brief summary and, set, and the setting of this book. The best things in life is divided into a series of three dialogues. So in the first one, chapters 1 through 6, Socrates meets Peter Pragma, who is studying for an exam on the campus of Desperate State University. And Socrates engages Peter in a conversation, and Peter gets drawn into taking a second look at his goals and his motives for going to school. Uh, Socrates is making him question his career choices, and he's making him consider what the good life really is. 
Okay, and in the second series of dialogues in chapters seven through eleven, uh, it has Socrates again, but this time he's talking to Felicia Flake, and as and, and they're going to talk about drugs. They're going to talk about sex and love and rock music and feminism and 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 they're going to talk about whether communism or capitalism is right or wrong. Okay, they're going to dis- discuss all of those topics, and in the final dialogue which uh, are the interlude and chapter 12, that is a tutorial where Socrates helps Felicia understand the reality and the necessity of objective values, Um, values which underline the specific ethical issues mentioned in the earlier dialogues, okay? And so, um, how many of y'all, we've all uh, taken a science course um, in our time at school, how many of y'all have looked at an, a human anatomy chart, like the human body on a poster and, or on an image somewhere, and you, you can like see the anatomy of a human, like you can see the stomach, you can see the heart, the lungs, small intestine, large intestine, kidneys, all of those sorts of things. Y'all have seen those before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, um, in or- and why do we do that? Well, we want to learn more about people, right? We want to learn more about the human body, okay? And so in order to learn more about people, we can look at that anatomy chart with all the parts of the human body listed before us and set out before us on paper. But is that all to the story? We don't really, by looking at an anatomy chart, we don't really learn anything about the way people think, or the way people act, or the way they live, right? Uh, you know, obviously, if we look at an anatomy chart, we can easily uh, see and figure out how a person stays alive, but we're never going to find out anything about the way a person lives, right? We are not going to find out through an anatomy chart the way a person thinks, or why they act and think like they do. And so we cannot look at an anatomy chart and analyze the ethical life to learn about its design and its parts, right? Uh, What's right or wrong, good or bad, or how we should live as people. We can't do that with a poster. Um, And uh, yet the worldview that is propagated in the best things in life, it's not biblical because it it views morality uh, as something that's separate and apart from religion, okay? It's like trying to figure out why people act the way they do by just looking at the the body parts on an anatomy chart, right? It's trying to be moral without acknowledging and trusting the source of morality. Um, Trying to do that is is like trying to make a person live just by putting its individual organs back together again. It can't happen, right? Uh, So apart from the triune God of the Bible, ethical laws are as dead as a dead corpse laying on a table. We just do not have the power to turn dead body parts uh, into a living person. Okay, It's the same thing with morality and ethics. Um, We don't have the power to turn moral laws or ethics into a moral life. And the only way that we can really live the good life is by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is it. You cannot have a a good life separate from the God of goodness. Okay? So 
Let's take a couple of minutes uh, and think about why the book, uh, The Best Things in Life, and why so many people, Christians included, assume that our moral actions can be separated from a personal relationship with God. Uh, why do you think that our moral actions can be dissected like a, like a body in an autopsy? Right? Why do you think people do that? You ever thought about that? Hmm? Why, um, why do so many people, including Christians, assume that our moral actions can be separated from a personal relationship with God? Why do they assume that we can know right and wrong without knowing the God of right and wrong? Not so much, not so much. You, you might be kind of on the right track. I have to make a few, a few leaps to get there. Uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of people want to um, get, uh, understand that there's right and wrong apart from God. It's because they want the good things that God gives without God, a relationship with God himself. Because they hate God in their hearts, right? And, and, and of course, Romans 1 says that their understanding is clouded and their, their understanding is suppressed, okay? And people have been trying to ask this question for years, right? Uh, and some people argue for this position. Uh, they use the myth of the virtuous pagan. That's a myth that's, that's uh, been talked about, you know, over the past, uh, you know, over thousands of years, uh, you know, uh, people see unbelievers. What is the myth of the virtuous pagan? Well, pa- basically, people see unbelievers doing outward, external, visible good works in the world. Y'all have seen that before, right? Y'all have seen people who claim atheism that, hey, there's no God out there, do good things, right? That's the idea of the virtuous pagan. Uh, what, are some, what are some good works that we see pagans doing? Give me some examples. This is not a trick question. What are some good things that people do generally? Um, not kill people. Huh? Not kill people. Well, you're telling me what people don't do. I, I want to know what good works people do. Keep people alive. In what way? Medicine. So doctors, we see pagans as doctors that help people, right? Mm-hmm. What else? Give me some other examples. They're just normally kind. They're kind to people? They're not jerks, generally speaking? They say please and thank you. What else? Uh, Do pagans give to the poor? Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Uh, if uh, a pagan's neighbor is in a bond uh, and they can help, do they normally help or could they help? Yeah. Have we heard of people, pagan neighbors, helping other people? Yes. Yeah, we have. Yeah, so that's the argument that people give. Well, these guys do all of these good works. Well, obviously they can know right and wrong without a relationship. With God, And so they reason that if unbelievers and believers both do good works, then being moral must not be directly connected to their relationship with God. And so in theological discussions, this has been the problem uh, called the problem of the virtuous pagan. And so in other words, if morality can't be separated from our faith and our worldview, 
then how do we explain the obvious fact that unbelievers sometimes do external works like being a big big brother? You've heard of the big brother program? Uh, basically, they act as a big brother to a fatherless child. Or how do we explain the fact that pagans help uh, a, a sick neighbors and people who are sick and dying? How can we answer for this? If we believe that people can't be good and moral without God, then how come we see this all over the place? How can we answer for this? Well, the Bible says that there, are, there is more to good works than just the visible and the external part. Do you all understand that? I feel like I'm talking to a wall right now. Like I'm, I'm trying to figure out if people are actually understanding what I'm saying. Good, good. Well, so do you understand that? The Bible says that there is more to good works than just the part that you see, the part that's visible out there, right? Uh, out of the heart comes the wellspring of life. Uh, every visible or external act that we do is connected to our invisible internal attitudes. That's what the Bible says. Uh, that means that truly good works those that God thinks are good must be good inside of us as well as externally good. They have to be internally good and externally good. And so the Bible tells us that truly good works must meet at least three biblical criteria. Okay? So y'all read about this in your introduction. What is, what are, what is one of the good criteria that the, a truly good work must have? I'll start you off. It must have the right standard. It also must have the right goal and the, and the right motive. So good works, according to the Bible, must have three things. The right standard, the right goal, and the right motive. Okay? Right goal, right standard, right motive. So what is the right standard for a good work? It's easy. This is like Christianity 101. Doing it to the glory. Well, we're going to get that's a, that follows under the other reasons. What is the standard for it? God's standard. Huh? God's standard. The Bible. The Bible and its obedience to? His words. And particularly manifested in His? Commandments. Huh? Law, yeah. Commandments. The law, right. So that's the right standard. God's law is the standard for good works. And 1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is lawlessness. Not general lawlessness of just some other law out there in the world. No, it's lawlessness. It's not following God's law. That's, uh, <clears throat> that's what sin is. It is lawlessness. So anytime you sin, you're breaking some aspect of God's law. Okay? And so what is the right goal? We have the right standard. The right goal is what, Aaron? Just say what you said a minute ago. To the glory of, to the glory of God. That's right. That's right. The right goal, the goal for the, for the good work is the glory of God. Now we can already see how the pagan good works fail to meet these standards already. Do, if, they don't, if they don't love God, uh, if they don't have a relationship with God, is, is there external good works meeting, uh, meeting this criteria, the right goal? Their goal isn't the glory of God. Their goal is for the glory of something else. 
right? Uh, in Matthew 6.33, Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God. So any external good work that doesn't seek first the kingdom of God, according to Scripture, is not a good work. Okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Pagans don't do that. Colossians 3.23 commands us, saying, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. All right, so we have the standard. The standard is God's law. We have the, the right goal, which is to the glory of God. And then finally, the right motive must be faith in Christ, informed by the love of God. That's the right motive. The right motive for doing good works must be faith in Christ, informed by the love of God. You do the good work because you love God. Uh, Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not from faith is sin. That means whatever you do, it doesn't matter who is helped. You could have saved a whole village from dying. If it is not done in faith, if it doesn't have, if, if you didn't think about, if your goal is not the glory of God and you didn't do it in faith, your good work, even that great work is sin because you're doing it for the glory of something else. Okay? So, Whatever you do, you have to do in faith. In faith. That's so important. So these three components combined, make uh, that's what makes a good work truly good. What are they again? You need the right standard, God's law. You need the right goal, glory of God. And you need the right motive. And what's that? Faith in Christ, informed by the love of God. You do it because you love God. Right, that's your motivation. And so, now that we have these biblical parameters, let's look back at the, at the uh, situation of the virtuous pagan. So, suppose the unbeliever's virtuous act is to give generously to the poor. Does he meet the criteria of the right standard by following God's law with respect to the external helping of someone in need who's less fortunate than ourselves? Yes, he does, right? The, my, the law does say it's good to give to the poor, right? But does he have the right goal? No. no, he does not. Because in giving, since he's an unbeliever, he neither seeks the glory of God, and does he have the right motivation? No. no. He, he's not motivated by faith in the love of Christ to do it. So therefore, it is not a good work. Um, he might have selfish, he probably does have selfish goals and motives behind why he's doing what he's doing. Even giving to the poor, you can seek glory for yourself and you can uh, have selfish motives and goals for even doing what externally looks like the best of things. Uh, you know, uh, who knows? Maybe this person giving to the poor outwardly, trying to show everybody, maybe he's trying to look good in front of others to get elected to a political office. Maybe. Or, or maybe he only appears to have good motives and goals. Uh, for example, maybe he wants to eliminate suffering in the world with the goal of seeking happiness for all people. Peace and love. Right? But do those motives, world peace. You ever heard that? I want world peace. Does, do those motives live up to the biblical requirements for good works? No, they do not. They do not. Uh, in, in the situations uh, where the person is working towards peace and happiness in the world, you know, this can sound kind of harsh until we remember that the virtuous, quote, unbeliever 
is in rebellion against God. And because of that, he seeks man's happiness apart from God, who is the only person who can actually bring happiness. If a pagan has this idea, I would want to spread happiness into the world. Well, can he actually do that without God? No, God is the source and the author of happiness. So he doesn't have the right standard, the right goal, or the right motives in trying to do that. So it's not a good work according to God's standard, which is the standard that reality is based on. And so trying to attain happiness and peace for you or for someone else without God is straight up evil. That is evil. There's no neutrality here. You can't say that that's that's not good or not bad too. No, it's evil. Anything that you do that is not of faith is sin, no matter how good the work looks. Um, It's also impossible to do these things. Yet God, in his wisdom, uses these unbelieving works nonetheless, uh, which are not truly good, to accomplish real good in the world, including providing for the needy. Right? So even though these works have been done by people who... Um, don't have all of these biblical criterias, and according to God's standard, they've done bad works. Uh, God still uses these things uh, for his glory in the world. And so that's one of the major faults I have with this book and with Peter Kreft's worldview, because he's trying to get something very good uh, out of uh, the world without seeking the God who made it, without seeking the God of it, like the good life. You cannot get the good life apart from God. Peter Kraft in this book is saying that you can. Okay. Um, the best things in life also focuses a lot on the questions of the good life and objective truth. And as Kraft addresses these questions... He's addressing them from the wrong way. He's addressing them from the bottom up. The bottom up. He's trying to figure out what the good life is all the way from the bottom. Uh, And that's like, uh, what I mean by that is he's attempting to reason up from the experiences and the desires of man to attain truth. He's like trying to, he's looking up to try to figure out what is good and what is bad and what is the good life. That's the bottom up approach. Right, And so another way that we can say this is this is a man-centered approach, or we can call it the uh, anthropocentric approach, right? Y'all know all those words. Anthropos means man, and being centric is what? It's at the center, right? So this is a man-centered approach to trying to, uh, trying to learn morality instead of uh, the Bible's approach. See, because the Bible defines goodness and truth by looking at God and his works. And then from looking at God, we, can, we reason down to man. We don't reason from man up into the universe. We reason from God giving us, God gave us his revelation. We learn who God is. We learn his standards. And then we reason down from that. That's a top-down approach, right? That's what we need. And so, because the Bible talks about goodness a lot, right? Yeah. Uh, In fact, it mentions the words translated goodness over 600 times. And acknowledging that God is good is absolutely foundational to biblical thinking about moral goodness. So, what is good? Is good just some random 
floaty thing out there that we're all just trying to figure out what it is? Or, or does good mean something else? Good means something else. Good means what God is and does. So when you hear the statement, God is good. See, we have a tendency to say, okay, God, that's a subject, is, there's your linking verb, and then good, that's a predicate adjective, right? So, God is good, that means that we are describing what God is by using some other adjective that's apart from Him to describe Him. Does that make sense? That's the wrong way to do it. No, when we say God is good, we are literally saying that these two things are the same thing. God is good. Good is God. Maybe it'd be better to put switch the word order. Good is God. Right? So good, we can't we cannot gauge what goodness is apart from God and his character because he is the God of goodness. He is good. Uh, as Psalm 100 verse 5 says, it says for the Lord is good. Good is defined in terms of God. Uh, and the goodness of God only includes God's actions. It only includes God's character. It only includes what he creates. Good is not defined in terms of an ideal standard floating around somewhere in space or floating around in our minds. Um, That's man-centered. Again, we're the ones that are saying, examining, and putting the criteria of what is good and bad. We can't do that. No, God is that standard. Good is not the abstract quality or ideal conjured up by the philosophers, okay? So the reason I'm harping on this so much is I want you to keep remembering that as you read this book, okay? There are a lot of good things that are said in the book, but at the same time, you don't want to get roped into the idea that there's an idea of goodness that is apart from God. That's incorrect, okay? So, uh, you know, enjoy the book, have fun. Uh, but at the same time, you know, be critical of these ideas that are under the surface. Okay. And last thing, uh, even though the best things in life looks at happiness as an end goal in life, the Bible talks about a related but more fundamental and deeper concept called joy. Joy. So compare joy and happiness for a moment. They're similar, right? When you, you think of joy, you can easily think of happiness. And they, they're, they're very much the same thing. But uh, there are a lot of huge differences, too, between joy and happiness. See, joy is far deeper than just the emotional happiness uh, that you feel and the, and the feeling that causes you to smile or to laugh. No, joy is much deeper than that. And believe it or not, joy may, uh, may not come with the feeling of happiness at all. Okay? So in C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, he defines joy as an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction, uh, and should be sharply distinguished from both happiness and from pleasure. And so Lewis was drawn to God by his desire for joy, and he found it only by submitting to God, who is the source of all joy.